Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 194, The Time of Troubles. Last time we reviewed the life and times of the first three Romanov Tsars. Today we'll go over one of the most difficult and precarious years of Russian history, the Time of Troubles. Unlike most historians, I will start this era a little bit earlier, and it will begin with the death of Ivan the Terrible. Why might you ask would I begin in 1584 instead of the traditional start of the Time of Troubles, 1598? The reason is, who became Tsar with the death of Ivan IV? Fyodor I, the sixth child and only surviving son from Ivan's first wife, Anastasia Romanovna Saharina Yureva, was by most accounts a simple, pious man, not very interested in politics and certainly not groomed to be the Tsar. His older brother, Ivan Ivanovich, was the heir apparent until his father, in a fit of rage, murdered him in 1581. After seeing what he had done, Ivan the Terrible lamented, May I be damned! I've killed my son! I've killed my son! While doing my research for this episode, I came across one historian who thinks my timeline as to the start of the Time of Troubles maybe even too late. Interestingly, I found the one such assertion in a book authored by my late Russian history professor, Dr. Paul Average, in his book, Russian Rebels, 1600 to 1800. In it, he quotes an outsider looking in to post Ivan the Terrible's death and into Russia. Quote, God hath a great plague in store for this people. Such was the gloomy prediction which Jerome Horsey, England's chief commercial agent in Moscow, entered into his notebook near the close of the 16th century. A few years later, Tsar Fyodor, the last scion of the Rurik clan, was dead, and Muscovy was plunged into a chaos of famine, rebellion, and war, known in history as the Time of Troubles. Horsey, a seasoned observer of Russian affairs, blamed the gathering crisis on the misdeeds of Fyodor's infamous father, Ivan the Terrible, whose cruelty had bred a general hatred, distraction, fear, and discontentment throughout his kingdom. What Horsey and Dr. Average were trying to say is that the beginnings of the time of troubles could be linked back to the time of Ivan IV and his maniacal destruction of the boyar class. Average points this out when he states, quote, The chief victims of Ivan's tyranny were the aristocratic boyars, the hereditary princes of the land, who had been waging a long but unsuccessful struggle to maintain their ancient privileges against the expanding claims of the throne. Furthermore, it is pointed out that, quote, The old settled regions of the stream of uprooted humanity, swelled by homeless victims of the Oprichnina and periodic invasions by the Crimean Tatars, had reached alarming proportions. The old settled regions in the center and northwest were rapidly being depopulated. Many villages and towns, noted Fletcher in 1590, stand all uninhabited. 
the people being fled all into the other places by reason of the extreme usage and extractions done upon them. As you can see, by 1590, things in Muscovy were in dire straits. Things had deteriorated to such a degree that vast swaths of Russian territory were left abandoned, unable to produce anything of value for the people because there were no people to produce anything. This was not due to the end of the Rurik line or the ascendancy of Boris Godunov, but instead it was due to the irresponsible policies of Ivan IV. This is something I will bring up again in the next episode about the Tsar they called Grozny. But now back to his son. Fyodor was nowhere near ready to take the reins of the developing country. He exhibited a complete disinterest in governing. In reality, his brother-in-law, Boris Kudinov, took care of the day-to-day chore of running the government. Since most historians believe the start date of the time of troubles is the day Boris is made czar, I think that the year he began to help rule Russia in 1584 was the real beginning. There is a play, Tsar Fyodor Ivanovich, the second part of the three-part series, beginning with the death of Ivan the Terrible, ending with Tsar Boris, that was written in 1868 by Alexei Konstantinovich Tolstoy, a second cousin of Leo Tolstoy. It is a fascinating play and is available to read in English for those of you looking to it by looking up the play and the translator Jenny Kovan. Not only was Fyodor mentally impaired, perhaps more importantly to the continuation of the Rurik line of rulers, he was physically impaired. His wife was Irina Fyodorovna Gudnova, the sister of the sister of Boris Gudnov. What's unusual about this marriage is her supposed age when they wed. She was 23 or 24, which was considered quite old for a first marriage in Muscovy. Most women were married in their early teens, some later, but very rarely in their 20s. Irina was often blamed of the lack of children coming from the marriage with Fyodor, with Metropolitan Dionysus pointing the finger squarely at her and suggesting that the Tsar divorce her and remarry for the good of the country. This enraged her brother Boris, who stripped the Metropolitan of his position and sent him to a monastery just outside Novgorod. Many boyars also suggested that the marriage be annulled, which further angered Boris. He not only punished the men, but he also had their daughters, some of whom were suggested as potential brides of the Tsar, banned to nunneries. Fyodor, for his part, backed his brother-in-law's harsh treatment of the boyars. This heavy-handed dealing with the leading men of the Muscovite court was going to be part of the problem that Gudunov was to have when he became Tsar in 1598 with the death of Fyodor. This is yet another reason why I'm beginning the time of troubles and having its start date in 1584. Fyodor and Irina were to have a child in 1592, but the girl was to die two years later. When Fyodor died in 1598, Irina took control of the throne, despite the wishes of her late husband to become a nun at his passing. For nine days, starting on January 7th, Irina tried to solidify her grip on power, first convincing the Russian Orthodox Church to support her, 
then winning the Boyars over. Unfortunately for Irina, the people of Moscow would not allow a woman to rule over them. After days of rioting, Irina stepped away from power, handing over the reins of Russia to her brother Boris. For the time being, the people were happy. This happiness would change to sadness and despair just a few short years later. We are now left with a nation without a hereditary ruler. While this is not entirely without precedent in human history, of course, but it was very important in the history of Russia. To get a deeper insight into this question, I turn to author Jeffrey Hosking in his book, Russia and the Russians, A History. Quote, When Fyodor Ivanovich died in 1598, he left no heir. The ending of the Rurikovich dynasty placed the Muscovite state and the peoples of Rus in a wholly new situation. Up till that time, if we may take the chronicles as a guide, the collective consciousness of Rus had focused on three concepts. The land of Rus, the princes of Rus, and Orthodox Christianity. It is intriguing that a potential fourth concept, the people of Rus, was absent, perhaps because of the ethnic diversity of the Rus territories. Hosking goes on further to ask, quote, Now at the end of the dynasty, a vital element in this trinity was removed. Had Moscow developed a strong enough corporate identity to survive without it? That question, more than any other, underlay the turmoil into which Rus was plunged during the coming decades. The boyars, the church, the service nobles, townsfolk, Cossacks, and peasants faced a decision about who was to rule over them and, perhaps even more important, how that person was to be chosen and on what moral basis he was to exercise his authority. All grievances and concerns Ensurfment, the growing burden of taxes and state service, ethnic assimilation, the defense of the frontier were subhumed in these two vital questions, posed directly for the first time at the end of the dynasty. I would add that there were actually three questions posed by the dilemma that arose from Fyodor's death. Would they survive, and if they did, who would lead them, and how would they choose this person? These questions led to the uncertainty and the almost, how much you say, comical turnstile-like revolving door of false Dimitris, czars and other leaders of the shattered state of the Rus. As an old Russian saying goes, quote, Without the czar, the land is a widow. Without the czar, the people are an orphan. After Fyodor's death in 1598, a Zemsky Sobor was held to elect a new czar. The natural person to take the position was the one who was the real power behind Tsar Fyodor, Boris Godunov. While Godunov was an able ruler, there was a tinge of suspicion about his rise to power and had to do with the mysterious death of one of Ivan's sons, Dmitri. If you remember way back in episode 23, entitled One Dmitri, Two Dmitri, Three Dmitri More, there would be a lot of resurrections of the son who supposedly died while having a seizure playing with a, a knife. I mean, really, his death was blamed by many on Gudunov, 
which was to become a noose around the Tsar's neck. The dead son of Ivan IV was the least of the problems that would face Gudunov. As I said, he was a capable man to lead Russia during normal times. But these were definitely not normal times. In 1587 to 88, there was a horrific famine, followed by yet another one in 1601-03. The peasant farmers abandoned whole regions of arable land. Not only did they suffer, but the landowners who relied on their work had no one to bring in the crops they had planted in springtime, whatever crops were actually viable. Tax revenue collapsed to such a degree that Gudunov was forced to end tax exemptions for the church and landlords, something that angered both groups. Not only the starving peasants, but the wealthier members of Russian society were beginning to lose faith in the government. Many of the serfs that worked the land began to disappear into the vastness of the Russian countryside. Because of the loss of manpower, Gudunov's government began to lengthen the time that the military could search and return runaway serfs. Along with other new laws, serfdom devolved into outright slavery, something that would economically haunt Russia until the middle of the 19th century, but would haunt its soul for much, much longer. One of the effects of the famine and the growing discontent of the people were the beginnings of the multiple revolts that would rock Russia from 1600 until the Russian Revolution of 1917. The first one was led by a brigand named Klopko, who directed a bunch of serfs and peasants moving towards Moscow with the intent of murdering wealthy landovers and taking their food and property. The mob was met with an army sent out by Gudunov and led by Ivan Basmanov. The fighting between the two groups was fierce, with both Klopko and Basmanov being killed. Klopko's rebellion set off some of the most bizarre effects and events in Russian history, known as the Cavalcade of False Dimitris. The first one was a mysterious person who we know very little about his early life. When he began to make claims that he was Dmitri, the dead son of Ivan the Terrible, Zargudinov ordered his arrest. The first Dmitri fled to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and hid out there for a while. He gained the support of this longtime enemy of Russia, and when Gudunov and his son died in 1605, Dmitri, along with a contingent of Polish troops, made their way into Moscow and succeeded in capturing the capital. Due to the ongoing famine and yearning for real czar with noble blood, this first Dmitri, false Dmitri, gained support from the people for a short period. He went so far as to go to the convent of Ivan's widow and mother of the real Dmitri, Maria Nagaya, who confirmed that, yes, yes, this is my long-lost child. Well, then the rumor mill began to churn out stories that this Dmitri is not who he said he was, and, in fact, he was a Catholic asset, which turned the church, the boyars, and the peasants against him. Opposition to Dmitri was fueled by one of the remaining powerful boyar families, the Shuiskis. Vasily Shuisky led the plot as he saw this as his way to the throne. A mob of boyars and commoners stormed the Kremlin and captured false Dmitri I. They unceremoniously murdered him, then cremated him, stuffing his ashes into a cannon and firing it in the general direction of Poland. 
With his death, Vasily Shusky named himself the Tsar of Russia, but few really recognized his title. Over the next four years, Shusky did what he could to consolidate his power without success. He tried to stem the tide of Dmitri's running around his kingdom by disinterring the body of the real Dmitri, as well as having the church name him a saint, a dead man. But this ruse failed miserably. Shusky's reign was to come to an end after the Battle of Klushino, which was fought on July 4, 1610, between the forces of the Kingdom of Poland and the Russians during the Polish-Muscovite War. A group known as the Seven Boyars decided to remove Shuisky and replace him with the king and the son of the king of Poland, Prince Władysław. At the time, false Dmitri, too, was wandering around Russia trying to gain support. Now things began to really get weird as Jerzy Menzish, father of Maria Menzish, the widow of the first false Dmitri, reunited him with his wife, who miraculously recognized her late husband as this first Dmitri, even though she knew full well that he had been killed a year before. I'm not making this up. This is history. Additionally, this Dmitri had the backing of a monk named Filaret, who he would elevate to Metropolitan. Yes, this is the same Filaret whose son Michael Romanov would become Tsar in 1613. Well, with the Poles backing one of their own, they refused to support this next false Dmitri. Well, this was a significant blow to the rebellion as they had already raised around 100,000 men, which made them a major force that could have easily crushed any Russian resistance. Eventually, the Polish army began to irritate the population of Moscow, and they would be forced out, but not before the Swedes began to poke their noses into the affairs of Russia. Now, things got downright awful for the Russian people. The Polish reign of Vladislavs ended when his father Sigismund opposed the compromise of allowing orthodoxy to remain as the religion of Russia. He decided to take the throne himself and to convert Russia to Roman Catholicism with the backing of the Pope. Now, this really pissed off the people and aroused anti-Catholic and anti-Polish feelings in Russia and infuriated the pro-Polish boyars that supported him. Sweden strongly disapproved of the move, as they were fighting the Polish-Swedish wars on the Baltic coast, but this caused them to declare war on Russia. The Swedes started the Ingrian War and began supporting the next false Dmitri, false Dmitri number three. Russia was by now effectively a failed state. The throne was vacant, the nobility quarreled amongst themselves, the Orthodox Patriarch Hermogenes was imprisoned. Catholic Poles occupied the Moscow, Kremlin, Smolensk was being besieged, and the Protestant Swedes seized Novgorod. Tens of thousands died in battles and riots as large bands of brigands, including Ivan Bolotnikov, who I covered in episode 124. Add to that the Tatar raids, which left the southern borderlands of Russia completely depopulated and devastated. This was the point in history of Russia where everything could have ended and the country gobbled up by the Swedes, Poles, Lithuanians, and the Ottoman Empire. But the people of Russia had had enough and decided to fight back. 
the majority of the Polish army had left Moscow because of the lack of back pay. The Second Volunteer Army was created and joined by other anti-Polish Russian forces in Moscow. Russian history records that Kuzma Minin, a merchant from Nizhny Novgorod, helped to fund the Second Volunteer Army. He also recruited Prince Dmitry Pozarsky, a high-ranking boyar close to the Russian throne, to lead the army. On September 1, 1612, the Battle of Moscow began. There were actually two battles, with the second one occurring on September 3rd. Both were victories for the forces led by Pozarsky, which convinced King Sigismund to re- withdraw his troops. And they were camped only 30 miles from Moscow. And they headed back to Poland. Russia was, for the moment, safe from foreign invasions. The time of troubles was coming to an end. The only thing left was to find a new czar to lead the now-shattered country. As we learned last episode, it was to be Michael Romanov, and his ascendancy to the throne would begin the 300-year reign of the Romanov family. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time when I cover the life and times of one of the greatest writers in Russian history, Boris Pasternak. So now, as always, Das Vidanya is Pasiba Bolshoya.